welcome to season two of Bible study for regular people. I'm Tana. Let's get started. Last time we read Psalm 36, it was 12 verses. Tonight is Psalm 37. It is 40 verses. Let's go. Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiant like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. It only leads to harm. For the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. Soon the wicked will disappear. Though you look for them, they will be gone. The lowly will possess the land and will live in peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the godly. They snarl at them in defiance. But the Lord just laughs, for he sees their day of judgment coming. The wicked draw their swords and string their bows to kill the poor and the oppressed, to slaughter those who do right. But their swords will stab their own hearts, and their bows will be broken. It is better to be godly and have little than to be evil and rich. For the strength of the wicked will be shattered, but the Lord takes care of the godly. Day by day, the Lord takes care of the innocent, and they will receive an inheritance that lasts forever. They will not be disgraced in hard times. Even in famine, they will have more than enough. But the wicked will die. The Lord's enemies are like flowers in a field. They will disappear like smoke. The wicked borrow and never repay, but the godly are generous givers. Those the Lord blesses will possess the land, but those he curses will die. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. Once I was young, and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the godly abandoned by their or their children begging for bread. The godly always give generous loans to others, and their children are a blessing. Turn from evil and do good, and you will live in the land forever. For the Lord loves justice, and he will never abandon the godly. He will keep them safe forever, but the children of the wicked will die. The godly will possess the land and will live there forever. The godly offer good counsel. They teach right from wrong. They have made God's law their own, so they will never slip from his path. The wicked wait in ambush for the godly, looking for an excuse to kill them. But the Lord will not let the wicked succeed or let the godly be condemned when they are put on trial. Put your hope in the Lord. Travel steadily along his path. He will honor you by giving you the land. You will see the wicked destroyed. I have seen wicked and ruthless people flourishing like a tree in its native soil. But when I looked again, they were gone. Though I searched for them, I could not find them. Look at those who are honest and good, for a wonderful 
future awaits those who love peace. But the rebellious will be destroyed. They have no future. The Lord rescues the godly. He is their fortress in times of trouble. The Lord helps them, rescuing them from the wicked. He saves them, and they find shelter in him. In the margin on this, I have a note to relate it to 1 Samuel chapter 25. And I'll sum that up in a minute. But first, I want to point out a couple verses that stand out to me here. Verse 25, David says, Once I was young, and now I am old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned. And then in verse 35 and 36, he says, I have seen wicked and ruthless people flourishing like a tree in its native soil, but when I looked again, they were gone. Though I searched for them, I could not find them. So he's relating what he's putting in this verse about, in a nutshell, God bringing justice to the wicked and taking care of and providing for the godly. He, he says, I know this because I've seen it. Now, we turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'm not going to read it, but I, I read it myself a second ago. And to sum it up, this is the story of Nabal and Abigail. So basically, David, as he is out traveling during the time that he is on the run from King Saul. This is a long period of time. He meets a lot of people. There's a lot of Bible stories from that time, and this is one of those. So David has a tendency to take care of anybody he meets along the side of the road while they're traveling who seems to be needing something. He kind of makes a habit of this. He just takes care of people uh, that he comes across, and God uses that uh, multiple times to work in his favor. This is one of those. So as he and his men are out, they come across some shepherds with a bunch of sheep, and while they're out in the wilderness with their herds, David and his men protect the shepherds and their flocks, and they take good care of them, and they treat them well and they basically just hang out protecting them while these shepherds are doing their job in the in the wilderness sorry for the car horn that's from the apartment parking lot and then they go on their way well then david needs to travel through a man's piece of property and that man is nabal who happened to be the owner of all of those herds and uh the boss of the men who were caring for them and so david sends this guy word and he says hey uh we're coming through could you guys do us a few favors could you give us some provisions that you might have on hand for me and our men he basically says we're, we're traveling can you help us out with some supplies and Nabal, who is an evil man, scoffs and sends insults and calls them a band of outlaws and decides to throw himself a party instead. 
and starts living it up like he's some kind of a king, completely ignoring the request of the man who just spent a lot of time protecting his own property. David, with a bit of a temper, decides he's going to go kill Nabal now. But Nabal's wife is awesome. Her name's Abigail. A servant comes to her, because apparently he knows she's the one with the sense, and says, you won't believe what Nabal has done. He's really made a mess of things. Abigail, you've got to step in and fix this. And she does. She sends a bunch, a bunch of gifts to David, says, I'm so sorry for my husband's behavior. Please forgive him. Uh, and basically begs for mercy. And she's like, I wasn't there when you sent your servants to ask for provisions. I would have made sure you got them. Thank you for everything you did. You know, and she handles it with a lot of grace. And David says, bless you. You kept me from murdering your husband. <laughs> but so she gets home and finds her husband drunk at his party, waits till the next day, tells him what she had done. She outs herself to him. But he was so upset about it, he had a stroke, became paralyzed, and 10 days later, the, the Lord killed him. Right? So God took Nabal out. And David was like, huh, God took care of it. I didn't even have to do anything. He says, praise the Lord who has avenged the insult I received from, from Nabal and has kept me from doing it myself. <laughs> and then he ended up to uh, go on and marry Abigail, who was now a widow, who would have been his second wife. Anyway, so I just thought that was interesting. I have no idea how the note um, about 1 Samuel 25 ended up in my own handwriting next to Psalm 37, but it does make sense. This is one of those examples where David encountered uh, a, you know, real, real peach of a man, um, but God ended up taking care of him. And also, David doesn't allude to this directly, but, you know, God took care of Abigail as well, who was a wise woman. In my footnotes on Psalm 37, I thought I would read one. Uh, verse 1 says, Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. And, and verse 16 says, It is better to be godly and have little than to be evil and rich. And I have a little footnote here. It says, we should never envy evil people, even though some may be extremely popular or excessively rich. No matter how much they have, it will fade and vanish like grass that withers and dies. Those who follow God live differently from the wicked, and in the end, will have treasures in heaven. What an unbeliever gets on earth may last a lifetime, but what you get from following God lasts forever. And lastly, I'm going to read just a piece of a, another comment. Remember when I was talking about 1 Samuel chapter 25, how David would help anybody he met in his travels that seemed to need a hand. I uh, comment down here on 
Psalm 37, verse 25, which 25 says, Once I was young, and now I am old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for bread. When we see a Christian brother or sister suffering today, we can respond in one of three ways. One, we can say, as Job's friend did, if you refer back to the book of Job, that the afflicted person brought this on themselves. Two, we can say that this is a test to help the person develop more patience and trust in God. Or three, we can help the person in need. David would approve of only the last option. Although many governments today have their own programs for helping those in need, this is no excuse for ignoring the poor and needy within our reach. And I love that. Option one, we can say as Job's friend did that the afflicted person brought this on himself. I have heard people say this about the homeless. You know, somewhat to the effect of they're lazy or they just don't want to work or they're just on drugs or whatever. Ah, they brought it on themselves and they just ignore it and go on about their day. Two, we can say that this is a test to help the person develop more patience and trust in God. This would be when a person sees someone uh, struggling and they're like, well, God's teaching them something. It's about time they grew up. It's about time they learned. Whatever. And finally, option three is we can help the person in need. That doesn't mean we have to swoop in and be a rescuer and a hero for every problem at our own expense to the point that we're used. But it does mean we shouldn't just walk by and ignore. We should do something. And it says, although many governments today have their own programs for helping those in need, this is no excuse for ignoring the poor and needy within our reach. And maybe it just means we help people to get access to help that is available for them. And there are programs and services out there that can do way more for people than, you know, any one individual like myself could. But I may be able to help someone get access to that. I think it's just important that when we see someone in need, instead of letting our minds go down the path of, gee, I wonder what got them there. I wonder why they're in that position. I wonder what they're doing about it. To steer our thoughts toward I wonder what they would need to be able to overcome that. And is there anything I can do to help with that in a little way? And it doesn't mean we have to solve everything, but I think it's important to recognize that God may be needing us to do a piece of it. He needs us to do a little piece. He'll use someone else to do a little piece. He'll use another person to do a piece. And he'll do whatever work he's doing in that person's life. But that doesn't mean we have zero responsibility or zero opportunity to be used by God in that situation. Which reminds me of a good friend I had in Florida who commuted about two hours one way every weekend to and from work. And he said, when I'm driving down the interstate, anytime I see a car pulled over, I always pull over and stop. I said, why? I was like, everybody has cell phones these days. He's like, you know, not everybody does. I've 
pulled over and the person didn't have his cell phone. So I let him use mine. They called a tow truck and that's all they needed. He's like, one time I just held an umbrella over a guy so he could change his tire not in the rain. He's like, sometimes they don't need anything and I, they've are, they're just waiting on the tow truck. Everything's been called and I go on my way, but sometimes they just need someone to hold an umbrella. And I just like, that's really awesome. (laughs) That's really great. It also made me really sad because as a female in our society today, I have been taught for as long as I can remember that females are vulnerable and that it's not safe to pull over and help someone. How messed up is that? It's not safe because they might not be a good person. They might pull a gun on you. They might kidnap you, rape you, blah, blah, blah. That's terrible. In the book of Proverbs, we're in chapter 12, verse 21. No harm comes to the godly, but the wicked have their fill of trouble. Sure do. The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in those who tell the truth. The wise don't make a show of their knowledge, but fools broadcast. (laughs) Fools broadcast their foolishness. Sorry, my mind went to Trump. I can't help it. It just happened automatically. The wise don't make a show of their knowledge, but fools broadcast their foolishness. (laughs) Oh, I should move on. Okay, verse 24. (laughs) Work hard and become a leader. Be lazy and become a slave. Mm. Yep. I feel like that it can apply in a few ways. One is, you know, in, in the in the workplace, those who work hard uh, are more likely to move up in the company, while those who are lazy will always be the ones working for uh, someone else. I also feel like that can apply in the home as well. Uh, those who are are lazy aren't really going to have much say so in household decision making Uh, verse 25 worry weighs a person down that's the truth an encouraging word cheers a person up true but sometimes all the encouragement in the world won't lift the worry off another person's shoulders Verse 26, the godly give good advice to their friends. The wicked lead them astray. Lazy people don't even cook the game they catch, but the diligent make use of everything they find. Ooh, I like this message of uh, uh, making good use of things, good stewardship. And verse 28, last chapter uh, last verse in the in the chapter, the way of the godly leads to life. That path does not lead to death. All right, on that verse twenty three that I laughed at, the wise don't make a show of their knowledge, but fools broadcast their foolishness. 
I still find that funny. Okay, uh, I'll read a comment my Bible has on this. Wise people have a quiet confidence. Unstable people, fools, feel the need to prove themselves. But wise people don't have to prove anything. They know they are capable so they can get on with their work. Beware of showing off. If you are modest, people may not notice you at first, but they will respect you later. And, uh, you know, clearly this is one of the reasons why, in my opinion, Trump has uh, lost a lot of respect in, in people's eyes is his tendency to talk himself up so much where a wise person doesn't need to do that. And here's a comment on the other verse that I liked here, verse 27. Lazy people don't even cook the game they catch, but the diligent make use of everything they find. The comment here is, the diligent make wise use of their possessions and resources. The lazy waste them. Waste has become a way of life for many who live in a land of plenty. And man, isn't that the truth, at least here in the U.S.? We have uh, more than enough, in fact, often suffer from uh, burnout of too many decisions and often are, are quite wasteful of, of food, of clothing, of possessions. It says, waste is poor stewardship. Make good use of everything God has given you and prize it. I really like that message. In the New Testament, we are in chapter 10. Previously, we read about Philip ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch. We read about Saul's conversion, and then we read about Peter healing Aeneas and raising Dorcas from the dead. We are still on Peter continuing his story in chapter 10. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man and was, and, uh, sorry, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel, and the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner, who lives near the seashore. My mind can't move past verse 4 for a second. He says, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. That strikes me because we don't do any burnt offerings anymore today. But our gifts to the poor can still be an offering to God and not just an offering in whatever church we go to, but even by giving directly to the poor, that's an offering to God. All right, verse five. Now, since I'm into Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter, he is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So Simon Peter is staying with Simon, the tanner, not to be confused. Verse seven. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. 
The next day, as Cornelius's messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat uh, roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry, but while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was lay, uh, was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles and birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. Notice that the animals listed, uh, reptiles and birds, are ones that the Jewish law prohibited from eating. And even though Peter has been, uh, we'll say, set free from the Jewish laws, he still holds to them, right? They're still ingrained in him. He still sees himself as a Jew, just a Christian Jew. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was perplexed. What could the vision mean? Just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house standing outside the gate. They asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you were looking for. Why have you come? They said, We were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He is a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter, man, what a sign of faith. He knew this was from God. He knew his men would find Peter. He knew Peter would come and give them a message. And he's like, everybody, you got to be here. You want to hear this message. He invites all of his family and all of his close friends over for a religious message. That's not the kind of gatherings we have today. <laughs> Verse 25, as Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up. I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. Peter told them, you know, it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. Cornelius replied, four days ago, I was praying in my house about this time, three o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon a Tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here, waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. Then Peter replied, 
I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, and that that peace can come for everybody. Verse 37, you know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. When Peter asked, Can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave the orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. So first I'll go through and see if there's any, sorry, my dog just had a little shake. See if there's any good comments on these passages, and then I'll share how this uh, piece of scripture actually contributed to my own choice to get rebaptized at the age of 23. Okay, speaking of verse 2, where it says about Cornelius, he was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. This comment says, what will happen to the heathen who have never heard about Christ? This question about God's justice is often asked. Cornelius wasn't a believer in Christ, but he was seeking God and was reverent and generous. Therefore, God sent Peter to tell Cornelius about Christ. This shows that God rewards those who sincerely seek him. Cornelius' story demonstrates God's willingness to use extraordinary means to reach those who desire to know him. Those who sincerely seek God will find him. God made Cornelius' knowledge complete. And I have uh, experienced that in other ways through uh when I was in college and majored in missions and in our experience as missionaries overseas, I've seen that to be case more in present day as well, where people will believe in God, a God. They're seeking him wholeheartedly and God makes a way to say, you're right. I'm here. I'm for you. And I have a son who died for you. He finds a way to send them the message of Christ as well, and their hearts are already open to it because they're already believers. It's really quite amazing. And then there's maybe the 
more existential question well what if they're on that path and someone comes and murders them and their life is cut short what if they never know about christ are they still saved etc and i'm like you know god is a just and good god and i believe that he is a just and good god so i don't actually worry for them i i feel like god knows people's hearts and it's not about what I think, you know, the, the path of salvation to be. God is the one who created that path to salvation in the first place, so he can do what he wants. Um, so, yeah, I, I have faith that even those people are just fine. Okay, here's another good comment on verse 34 to 35. 34 says, then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. The comment says, perhaps the greatest barrier to the spread of the good news in the first century was the Jewish-Gentile conflict. Jews being the Jews and Gentiles being everybody who's not a Jew. So it's very much an us and them. Most of the early believers were Jewish, and they thought it scandalous even to think of associating with Gentiles. But God told Peter to take the good news to a Roman, and Peter obeyed despite his background and personal feelings. God was making it clear that the good news of Christ is for everyone. We should not allow any barrier, language, culture, race, geography, economic level, or education level to keep us from telling others about Christ. And this is gotta be such a huge moment for Peter because the Jewish people are the direct descendants of the tribe of Judah who is are the direct descendants of Jacob like Abraham Isaac and Jacob and their whole people the tribe of Israel uh, the the nation of Israel which was in separated into the 12 tribes from the 12 sons of Jacob, whose Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Um, all throughout the Old Testament, I mean, the entire Old Testament is about God's relationship with this specific nation and how they were set apart. But what I think is super amazing at the Bible is that entire hundreds and hundreds of years of history was all just a setup for Christ depicting how Christ followers are to be set apart. They behave differently. Every All the other nations, quote-unquote, uh, see them as weird, but God is with them and has a relationship with them. And even in the Old Testament, though, when other people would join the Israelites, God was encouraging of them having a relationship directly with him, too. Right? There was this story in the making here, which is literally the foundation uh, leading up to Christ's coming, but still he was welcoming of others having a relationship with him even then. However, humans gravitate towards us and them thinking. And as time went by, and the tribe of Judah became 
what's known as the Jewish people in the New Testament, and that happened in kind of that 400 years of silence in between the Old and New Testament. The Jews had this huge, long, rich history of God being specifically for them, that their relationship with God was unique, right? Very much an us versus them. We have the real God, you all don't. And here God comes and says, yes, they do. I am their God too. And you're the one who's going to tell them. <laughs> it's just, it's amazing. It's fabulous. Anyway, so kudos to Peter for being a man who is willing to follow God and let go of his heritage in favor of reaching out to the Gentiles at the direction of God to share his relationship with God and Christ with them too. And what I like is when he testified to them, he just told them, frankly, here's what happened. Here's what we saw. You know, he was just sharing his experience. I'm going to read a piece of a comment here. Cornelius needed Peter in order to hear the good news and know the way of salvation. Peter needed Cornelius in order to know that Gentiles were included in God's plan. You and another believer may also need each other to understand how God works. Okay, and finally where they received the Holy Spirit and are baptized. In this case, the people were baptized after they had received the Holy Spirit. There are other cases in scripture where they receive the Holy Spirit first and are then baptized. I did a whole personal study on this years and years ago. I'm like, oh, it happens both ways? Cool, then it really makes no difference. There's not something significant there. And this uh, piece, so he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of. No, it does not say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It says in the name of Jesus Christ. And this is another thing that I did a study on. Wherever people were baptized, I read that. Most places, it doesn't say anything. It just says they were baptized and that's the end of it. But where it says they were baptized in the name of, it's always Jesus Christ. The place where it says Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is where Jesus is alive and giving them the Great Commission. Go into all the world, preaching the good news, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I was re-baptized at the age of 23, and I asked uh, the person who did it, it was a good friend of mine, say, baptize me in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, a, because that's how it was done in the New Testament, and I wanted it to be done. Also, there's supporting scriptures for just the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, people being healed in his name. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. There is no name under heaven by which we are saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Um, so that was really a hugely, hugely strong conviction for me. And I had some friends come because I wanted them to be witnesses. And I told them exactly why I was doing it and that I didn't expect all of them to to jump into that boat with me and, and do it too. I wasn't trying to convert them of my newfound belief or ideology. I was just saying, hey, God's telling me to do this. And when God calls you to do something, you had best do it. And I'm, I'm still happy that I did it. I would have always um, 
felt uh, a heaviness on my heart had I not obeyed God's calling to do that. So anyway, yeah, this is just one of those examples that contributed to that for me.